Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. The issues that I care about is just people understanding that we're all humans, regardless of race, color, or where we're from. We're also breaking records for absentee ballots. As you've seen around the country, we're no exception. We feel good about where we are. We really do. I'm here to tell you tonight, we believe we're on track to win this election. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Those are voices in the news. And in just the last 24 hours, it is too early to call the presidential race. But nevertheless, you just heard the president wrongly saying he has won. A flood of absentee ballots expected to favor Democrats are still being counted. The president wants to stop the ballots from being counted. He argues if ballots continue to be counted, Democrats will do something nefarious and steal the election. In an overnight speech, the president offered no evidence to back up his claim. There's so much to talk about today. Let's get to our panel, who are are probably pretty tired, but graciously agreed to join us this morning. Thank you, Paul Bass, New Haven Independent Editor. You can follow him at Paul J. Bass on Twitter. Good morning. Good morning, Lucy. How nice to be with everyone this morning. (laughs) Charles Venator Santiago is here, Associate Professor of Political Science at UConn. Charles, welcome back. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And Colin McEnroe, host of the Colin McEnroe Show, columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. Colin, did you get some sleep? I, I'm trying to space out my coffee drinking uh, <laughs> this morning so it doesn't, you know, doesn't kind of pile up. Again, you can join us on Twitter at WMPR Wheelhouse. Let's start with the presidential race. Counting ballots and legal challenges will continue in the next few days. Yet President Donald Trump spoke before dawn this morning, threatening to go to court, apparently to stop the ongoing vote counting. This is what he said. For the good of this nation, this is a very big moment. This is a major fraud in our nation. We want the law to be used in a proper manner. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. We don't want them to find any ballots at 4 o'clock in the morning and add them to the list. Former Vice President Joe Biden spoke after midnight saying he was in a good position, but it would take time to count all the votes. We knew because of the unprecedented early vote and the mail-in vote, that's going to take a while. We're going to have to be patient until we, uh, the hard work of tallying the votes is finished. And it ain't over till every vote is counted, every ballot is counted. So, Colin, it's no surprise that the president has claimed victory when votes are still being counted. But when you hear him deliver these remarks from the White House that the Democratic process is a fraud, it's deeply troubling. 
It is deeply troubling. I mean, it's not, as you say, it's not surprising. It was sort of his declared strategy going in. His kind of wrap-up message was, I'm going to fire Fauci and this whole election is a fraud, which is kind of like a weird way to enter a campaign. <laughs> but, but there you have it. So, yeah, I mean, look, rep- reports of the Republicans' deaths were greatly exaggerated to say mm-hmm. something that Mark Twain actually never said. Uh, <laughs> and, and, yeah, I mean, you know, from a certain perspective— Biden is kind of on a path to victory, but it's going to go through Michigan. I mean, that looks like it's going to be a a bigger state uh, than maybe anybody had really imagined. Uh, If he can win Michigan, he wouldn't need Pennsylvania, uh, assuming the the other states kind of line up the way that it looks. But that's, in the words of Warren Zevon, lawyers, guns and money and Michigan guns. You know, I mean, people show up in places in Michigan with guns when they they want to participate in democracy. So I, I I think we're going to have some some pretty nervous nail bitey kinds of days, at least today, tomorrow, possibly Friday. You know, Pennsylvania, I, I, you know, that could just turn into Jarndyce versus Jarndyce, the long running case in, in Bleak House. You know, I don't know how long that takes to work out in the courts. And Biden is much better served if he can win without it, if he can uh, if he can decisively win Michigan. Uh, he can declare victory. I mean, that's all assuming that, you know, these other the, this other row of states. He's, I mean, he's already got uh, Arizona. Looks like he will have Nevada. Um, he will have Wisconsin, we assume. If he has that, Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, Wisconsin, that's it. He wins. Um, and, and he would be well served to do that and not need Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is going to take a long time. But as the person, the other person in my house said about last night, it was like a near-death experience without the comforting white light. Um, it, this is a real scary election cycle in a way. And one of the things that I, I, I'd be thrilled to hear my fellow panelists talk about this, it kind of call, calls into question, as did 2016, polling, mm-hmm. political journalism. I mean, once again, we seem to not entirely know what we're talking about, which... <laughs> which I find somewhat alarming since that's what I do for a living. But I'll, I'll turn it over to my friends here. Paul, you're a journalist. What do you say? I already knew I didn't know what I was talking about when it comes <laughs> to elections. The, um, the, Colin's last point was my big takeaway from the night last night was 2016 wasn't a fluke with the polling being wrong. The, the confidence going into, I won't name, including people on this panel who were predicting a Biden blowout after the voting started yesterday. Me. And sorry, I didn't want to say that, Colin. But, uh, but but it wasn't just that. I talked to a very experienced pollster right before the election. Was so confident of a blue wave in the Senate and a Biden blowout, and they said the polls had to be much more wrong than they were in 2016 because everything had been waiting. So I second Colin's view. And before we went on the air, Charles was saying some very interesting things about what this says about nationalism and the American. Psych. So we have to assume that nationalist voters don't tell pollsters what they believe. Right? You talked to the outlying pro-Republican pollster in the Times the day before election said that you have to ask five or six times to a Trump voter who they're voting for before you get the answer. So I think every it's kind of a, a splash of cold water in our faces every four years when we're awakening after election day to find out how deep racism and nationalism are in the American population. Mm. Charles, pick up on that. Uh, Paul, talking about what you were saying about political theory that could explain what we're seeing. Yeah, it, it's, it's. I remember taking classes 
30 years ago <laughs> political theories of and how nationalism moved passions emotions in such a way that sometimes reason can't uh and, and of course we had the french revolution and, and other revolutionary movements um but i thought that last night we would have seen a clear referendum on the failed policies of mm -hmm. trump but his ability to to mobilize a sense of national anger to counter the failure of his policies has been uh, fantastic is not the right word, but has been amazing for me uh, because I thought this was a referendum on the failed racist narratives, failed COVID politics, and we would see a clearer statement against that in, in similar ways that, that we saw with the Bush administration after the failures of, of the economy and, and the war. But somehow he's been able to politicize these problems uh, in a way that has that has mobilized people to support his racist narrative, his uh, toxic masculinity, and all these sort of issues that that I think are, I thought we were we had sort of moved forward at least in a different direction. Mm. That's and it's enough to mobilize a lot enough support to counter the democratic message. Mm. You know, in the media, we talk a lot about uh, COVID and the failures of the administration and the things and policies that the president has passed and said over the last four years. But then I think back, Colin, uh, to Ali Oshinsky, who uh, did a story on Trump voters in Naugatuck Valley here in our state, where a white woman says that, you know, while she likes Biden, you know, she doesn't believe Trump is a racist and her life is good. And then I think about an interview I heard on 60 Minutes where another white woman woman says, you know what, my 401k is looking good. I'm going to vote for Trump. Is that really what it boils down to? My life is good and the rest of it, you know, doesn't impact me. I'm going to stick with the status quo and Trump's doing a good job. You know, I, I don't think it boils down to one thing. Uh, and I think what Charles is saying is really important, too. I mean, I, mm -hmm. if I were going to pick one thing, uh, because it, it's it, it's first of all, it's very complicated to look at this. If COVID weren't happening, you'd think Trump would be doing better. But I'd mm -hmm. like to come back to that at some point because uh, I'm beginning to question that. Uh, and then another thing that we've sort of thought for a long time is that if Trump were a little bit more sly, if he were better at concealing his moral, intellectual and psychological psychological deficits, he'd be doing a lot better. I'm not sure any of that stuff is true anymore. That's just the way we think about it in journalism, it's very possible that COVID helped Trump a, a, a lot in certain places and hurt him in other places uh, in, in ways that we didn't fully understand. But, you know, I don't think it's one thing. I don't think it's just the 401ks or anything like that. I, I think one thing that we had not understood going into the Trump era is that there are a lot of people in America who don't who don't like the rest of the world. They don't like foreign countries. They're not interested in participating uh, in treaties, uh, whether they are peace agreements in Iran or um, climate accord <laughs> treaties or NATO <laughs> or the World Health Organization. They don't like any of that stuff. Uh, the, the, they really do subscribe to America first. That is a, and they don't like immigrants either. They don't like people coming in here from other places. Th that's, you know, and that sort of goes back to Charles's point about nationalism, too. If there's one animating piece of this, and I don't think there's just one animating piece, but I, I think if I had to pick the number one on their hit parade, it's something like that. You know, we're the best. We're the city on the hill and screw everybody else. Um, and, and Trump, even though he's a very inconsistent performer, he doesn't always say the same thing. 
he's been pretty consistent about that. And I, I think it, it, it works with people. Mm. Paul, what do you think? I think it's the idiocracy factor. I think elections partly come down to whom people like to see on TV. Mm. It's very possible that Trump made up a lot of ground in that last week. He put on a very good TV show while Joe Biden was running out the clock. So I thought the most salient datum in the month before the election was when more people watched Joe Biden on his town hall when there was no second debate than Trump. That devastated him because it's all about ratings and people are kind of tired of watching Trump and they kind of like this cozy father knows best show that was going on. Trump poured it on at the end. The Amy Coney Barrett was a huge victory for him because even though people like us say, oh my God, they put on you know this crazy woman on the ballot, people liked her and he won. There's something about victory. And then he got so much adrenaline going to all those rallies a day that we look at in horror because he's lying and contradicting himself and firing up hatred. But he was out there hustling people. And I think, the, you know, I've talked to people who voted for Trump the first time, regret it, and said, I have to admit, I kind of liked watching him. I kind of, it's TV, and I yeah. think we've kind of got, you know, the movie Idiocracy. I think we've kind of, it doesn't matter that he contradicts himself in the same speech because, you know, Colin was saying he isn't always on message. I don't know if it's the message as much as the messenger in the medium. And I thought we were tired of the Donald Trump show. It's possible the polls were correct. And that people are tired of the Donald Trump show and that he just poured it on, recovered from COVID, felt like he was Superman, had the adrenaline, got the judge in, went to all those rallies every day, even though they were horror shows. And Joe was, Biden was kind of sleepily running out the clock. It's possible that he just put on a better TV show at the end and more people wanted to watch. I could be wrong. <laughs> so we know that the ballots are still being counted, but... I know, Colin, you had said uh, before the show that voter suppression is still part of the story. And so like, what do we expect to see in the next several days, uh, Charles, in these battleground states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan? You know, Colin mentioned this earlier, but uh, so there is a pathway for Biden to get 270 votes. And that's assuming he can retain the 2016 uh, map and acquire Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin and, and Michigan. Um, Wayne County in Michigan uh, is still being counted, uh, and that's the county for Detroit. And their urban areas have a lot of or show a lot of support for Biden. Um, and then, of course, Wisconsin Kenosha is a very important uh, site for for that that could tip Wisconsin, and that's where Trump made his last stance or one of his last stances. Um, I, I think voter suppression in Wisconsin and Michigan could tip the balance in favor of Trump particularly counting uh, in sort of those larger urban areas or Biden supporters. Um, I, 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 I also wonder how fast uh, the Trump administration is going to put a stop or how, how quickly they're able to put a stop in voter counting, um, because that could also make a big difference uh, in the final out outcome. But again, this it looks like it's going to be a nail biter. A really tight race at 270. And then if it gets to 270, I wonder whether there's going to be a sufficient uh, roar from the Trump, uh, from the Republicans to to do some sort of recount that could tip it on the other side. Mm, Colin, what about the 300,000 ballots uh, that the U.S. Postal Service, uh, that they still need to be cleared? And I think that the latest uh, headline is that uh, the U.S. Postal Service is, isn't doing anything with that order from the federal judge uh, to conduct sweeps in these 12 postal districts around the country. Yeah, I think Judge Sullivan has asked both sides uh, to appear before him in court today uh, on that one. But yeah, it's uh, 
you know, the Hotel California, 300,000 ballots checked in and didn't check out. Uh, that's going to be a question. Um, and yeah, all, all across the board, everything that the, that Charles just said, I think is, is absolutely true. The, the Republicans and Trump, um, and this is sort of not in his demeanor or his psychological makeup. You kind of have to look for a sweet spot where you suppress votes or try to uh, tamp down the counting without s- having a victory that seems openly illegitimate, right? If it just seems like just an act of ruthless fascist bullying, you know, that, that kind of probably hurts you a little bit going forward. I don't know whether Trump has the capacity to make that discernment or not. You know, one thing I hope we can have time for, because I'd really love to hear Paul and Charles on this too, is, you know, it's not, we keep talking about Trump, Trump, Trump. I mean, look, the Democratic message went really, really wrong last night. They spent insane amounts of money on the U.S. Senate. They have almost nothing to show for it except Arizona and Colorado. They lost uh, the uh, Roy Moore seat back in Alabama, no surprise. Uh, but, you know, they threw huge amounts of money uh, at beating Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell and a whole bunch of other people. They got nothing out of that, uh, out of this. Pelosi's going to lose seats from her majority, but not her majority. And Biden, once again, goes in against a guy you think should be pretty beatable, you know, but maybe not with a clear enough message about what he's really delivering. And, and it does seem to me that ultimately the moderate and progressive wings of the party, the Democratic Party, are still at odds and, and, and still unable to kind of come out of the primary process with, A, a really, really strong candidate, which I do not think Biden is, and B, a really strong message, which they should be able to have. You know, the public option is a great message. Uh, You know, they've got lots of things that they can talk about that are great messages. But they mostly ran against Trump again, which is kind of what Clinton did in 2016. And that may have been a mistake. But I, I don't know. I'd love to hear Paul and Charles about just what do the Democrats have to do after this, even if they win the White House, they will have lost so many other things. How do they not have a gigantic intellectual reckoning? Charles? You know, two things. Trump has been very good at pinpointing small districts and where to campaign and mobilize people, particularly outside the urban areas. And I was looking at a map today. You know, governors, Republican governors are still winning. Uh, the state legislatures, they're still winning across the nation. And I, and I think the challenge is that the Democratic message is, is sort of tra- uh, focused on urban areas in some ways. So sort of, uh, sort of building, addressing questions of poverty in urban areas primarily and sort of somewhat neglecting uh, smaller towns or rural areas where Trump is just winning everything. Uh, so I agree with you in that. Uh, I also agree, I, I'm also, uh, I also agree with the ideological shift. The question for me is whether uh, sort of more progressive or leftist or folks who identify with more progressive agendas in the Democratic Party still voted for Biden, but that vote isn't counted or may not necessarily be enough uh, because that way we're seeing record numbers of voting. We won't know what those votes are yet. I guess it's going to take a little bit of time. But I do agree. I think there has to be some sort of reckoning and some sort of agreement on what is the goal of the Democratic Party, not just against Trump, but in general, because Trump is just a reflection of Republican policies. Aside Mm -hmm. from his rhetoric, he still has the same. He's still embracing the same kind of policies the Republicans have embraced for a while, aside from his public rhetoric. Paul, last word on this before we move on. 
I totally disagree with respectfully with the two panelists who know a lot more about this than I do. Both parties have fundamental fissures. Republicans is much deeper from protectionism to uh, deficits to foreign policy. They, I think Democrats came together remarkably around a very straight, clear message and everyone fell in line, which was Trump's norms were wrong. We want to help people more. Suburban women were responding. We don't like the hate and division. I think they had the right message. And I think that even though every party has fissures, the Democrats all came around with saying we got to just climate change. It was just in the details. More people got to be covered. It's more in details. That's way more complicated than you need to get into those details. I think money has a diminishing rate of returns, as we saw in Linda McMahon's campaigns here for Senate, in Jamie Harrison's campaign, where he got blown away despite having a record amount of money. So Colin was right about money. Money gets you to the table. But Trump has always shown with earned media. And again, I come back to the TV show that people like to watch and the sort of right below the surface nationalism that you're triggering. I think those are much bigger factors than the forever conflicts that both major parties have, which I would argue are much more pronounced in the Republican Party. I just want to quickly agree with Paul about the money. And I think he and I did learn that really well during the McMahon campaigns. You need enough money to run your campaign. If you have too much money, you can actually wind up irritating people. You know, you can get on their cases too much in terms of TV ads and mail pieces and stuff like that. There's a point in which not only do you not know how to spend it effectively, you can wind up spending it counterproductively. I wanted to just talk about what happened in Connecticut in terms of just the voting process. Paul, you were down in New Haven talking with voters throughout the day. Things went pretty smoothly. Yeah, I think the big challenge is going to be, and this is not a knock, is all of a sudden you have five times as many, six times as many absentee ballots in the past as well as early voting. So obviously there were some hiccups with that. And if we had more contested races, that would have been a problem. But yes, I think we're moving faster than we would have because of the pandemic towards a shift to early voting and absentee voting. And it overall over went well. I mean, in ways that aren't of existence to your listenership, there were some definite hiccups. There are a few thousand people in New Haven who didn't know that their votes counted because of a lag. That's something that can very easily be fixed in our clerk's office in the next two years. But yes, I think that um, things went better than expected as we go into this new era of how we're going to vote. Colin, uh, we heard from residents who'd like to see early voting here. Been in the legislature before it ends up uh, before voters? Yeah, I mean, look, the mechanism to get it there, you know, is, is supposedly a constitutional amendment. There, there may be ways around this. If we don't get early voting out of this, I'll be astonished. I think it's sort of clear that, you know, we're we're way behind most of the rest of the country on this. Uh, and certainly I also think universal no excuses access to absentee ballots is probably uh, here to stay now. I don't think that one uh, goes backwards either. And I just will you know, add to what you say. And we were talking about this last night on on TV and radio. You know, yeah, we've had a lot of debacles in Connecticut. 2010, Bridgeport was a mess. There weren't enough ballots. They had to keep the polls open. They had to go to a judge. Uh, 2014, people showed up to vote in the morning, including the sitting governor and sitting secretary of state, only to find that the voter rolls weren't at the polls. There were all kinds of problems. 
this worked out great for me because President Obama felt the need to get on my radio show and complain about it. Um, and uh, 2018, Paul could uh, talk about, uh, and our own Carmen Baskoff did an amazing job covering this problem with uh, Election Day registration, where just New Haven wasn't remotely ready to deal with this influx of people who wanted to register and vote on Election Day. There were four-hour waits. I mean, these are really, really big debacles. This time, they had a higher, steeper hill to climb, and they seem to have climbed it without major incident. So I think that's pretty impressive. That's Colin McEnroe, host of the Colin McEnroe Show here on Connecticut Public Radio. Also with us on the wheelhouse, Paul Bass, New Haven Independent Editor, and Charles Venator Santiago, Associate Professor of Political Science at UConn. Still so much to talk about, including Connecticut's congressional races. Stay with us. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. With us today, Paul Bass, New Haven Independent Editor, Charles Venator Santiago, Associate Professor of Political Science at UConn, and Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show, also a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. You can join us, too, on Twitter at WMPR Wheelhouse. Now, in Connecticut's U.S. House races, Jim Himes claimed victory in the 4th Congressional District. John Larson won in the 1st Congressional District. And Joe Courtney had rented out the Mansfield Drive-In for a socially distanced election night gathering. That sounded like fun. He did not want to declare victory at that gathering, but according to numbers from the Secretary of the State's office early this morning, Courtney now has a lead of more than 20 percentage points with almost all the precincts reporting. There's the third congressional district race. Democratic incumbent Rosa DeLauro claimed victory over Republican challenger Margaret Stryker. Stryker did not concede last night and early this morning, the Secretary of the State's office showed DeLauro with a roughly 10 percentage point lead. Uh, almost one quarter of the precincts were not yet included in this. So let's talk, uh, Paul Bass, about that uh, race between Rosa DeLauro and Margaret Stryker. Was it surprising to you uh, that it ended up the way it did? It did not. Um, when the numbers are all counted, it might be surprising that Stryker didn't get a bigger vote total than she mm. did. Like right now, Rosa DeLauro seems to have gotten 10 percent less than she did in past elections. This is the first time she had a living and breathing opponent since 1992 who ran a very strong race that I think positions her for two years from now. Remember that the votes that haven't been counted are over 20,000 absentees in Deloro's core, New Haven, West Haven, and Hamden. And she clobbered Stryker on the machines in New Haven, even though Stryker got some very impressive endorsements in New Haven from an Italian-American group that was unhappy about a Columbus statue being taken down, first ever endorsement from New Haven's police union. And that didn't make a difference in New Haven, which was the is the core. So I think that Stryker's right not to concede yet. I think Stryker ran an aggressive campaign and a visible campaign that positions her to be around. But I wasn't surprised that someone who was running the first real campaign against Deloro, even though it's an anti-Trump year in the district, would do better then people who never had time to campaign, never raised money, never, and people working for them never had endorsements, couldn't show up anywhere, couldn't put ads on TV. So that's the long and short. But Delora's really looking ahead now instead to becoming the chair of the Appropriations Committee. She's in the running for that job in, um, in Washington. That could help Connecticut, that high-profile position, Paul. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think Delora got a scare. These people aren't used to being mm-hmm. challenged, and it really rattled her. 
So she went up with her first ever TV ads in many years, attacking Stryker's record as a landlord. Stryker went after Rosa with all the Trump arguments, the nationalism arguments, the, um, as though you know she wasn't for defunding the police, but she did the Blue Lives Matter thing. But she also ventured into places in New Haven where people didn't go before. We had a story about her going to the New Hallville neighborhood, where she didn't get Handing out masks, right? Yeah, and, and giving out masks, but also engaging mm-hmm. people who didn't agree with her. And I thought she did a pretty good job. I think that she did show herself to be someone who could show up and run. So if she, you know, it's her first run. If she learned from this experience, I think we're going to see her in two years. Uh, Colin, looking at the 5th Congressional uh, District race, uh, Johanna Hayes did not want to declare victory over David X. Sullivan last night until all the votes have been counted. Talk about that race and, and what we're seeing. Well, the 5th District is always going to be the real battleground. I mean, you know, to Paul's point, uh, what happened in the 3rd is essentially that uh, Rosa DeLauro, like any politician, has weaknesses, but nobody ever exploits them because nobody's ever in any position to do that. So that now what we saw, you know, there was what happens when somebody can spend some money pointing out things about you that aren't so great. <laughs> you know, and it's a luxury for these Democratic incumbent Congress members that nobody ever does that to them. But, you know, the 5th is always going to be competitive. I would say that if you took Trump out of the equation, I mean, it's hard to say this because clearly in the way that Paul just referenced, Trump provides fuel and rhetoric to Republican challengers in these races. He's not a total 100 percent negative. But still, I would say if you took Trump, if you had sort of a a less controversial person at the top of the ticket, uh, if you had uh, less of a mismanaged pandemic uh, as just a huge glaring issue, I think Johanna Hayes would have been in, in a very, very tight race there. Uh, and this is also Sullivan, her opponent, unlike a lot of the people that Paul was talking about, you know, he didn't have no money. You know, he had PAC money that came in. He had a larger war chest typically than Republican congressional candidates have here. So, so, so that's another race where you can sort of see how it could become competitive, except the fifth has always been pretty competitive. I guess SD had a few races that weren't all that tight, but mostly I think you're going to see that again and again. Mm. Charles, have, we, have you been following the fifth district race? Yeah, yeah I, I've been, I, I, again, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but this question of nationalism for me, just, I mean, taking down a statue, making an ethnic claim of whether you're Jewish or, or Italian is sufficient to mobilize uh, an opposition to an established uh, representative who has a lot of seniority and who's done, frankly, done a lot of good work. I, I think in the case of Johanna Hayes, um, I, I just, maybe there wasn't enough of a nationalist racist attitude towards her. Uh, and I wonder if this uh, opponent, if he had invoked some of those nationalist tropes, whether he would have had a stronger uh, position or outcome. Well, he kind of did. Mean, I, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. just, I, I, I hate to fall back into that position, but nationalism seems to be moving. These sort of hatred seem to be moving a lot more people that mm-hmm. may Colin. agree. Yeah, I mean, Sullivan Sullivan did play that card. I mean, he he played that card in the form of you're going to see strife in the cities. You're going to see, I don't know, Simsbury on fire or something. There was a sort of idea that uh, that the, the kind of unrest that we saw in the summer 
would be brought into some of these quiet leafy suburbs in the fifth yeah. uh, and that Johanna Hayes somehow or other, I'm assuming because she's an African-American candidate, would be responsible for that somehow. So, I mean, it wasn't even a dog whistle. It was a human whistle. Uh, and um, so, so there, I mean, I think that's the kind of rhetoric you're talking about, Charles, and it was not absent from this race. I don't know. I thought it was so ridiculous that it would not help, but I'm kind of revising that estimate the way I'm revising so many of my other perceptions. Can I um, make just a little point? Because yes. I very much agree with Charles about nationalism nationally. But this was the same race that Rosa DeLauro had in 1992, a Milford Republican who came to Worcester Square and pushed those buttons. 30 years later is a lot different. It didn't really work. I mean, when the absentees are ballots are counted, I think Stryker did well in a lot of ways. But when the absentee ballots are counted, it didn't work. It didn't turn him out. You can where it was against from Deloro. You know, she, right now she has a five-point difference from her landslides when she ran against a nobody, and it might not be that different in the end. So while I 100% agree with Charles, the fact that Connecticut got even bluer, that the Democrats' strong majority legislature might be a little bigger, that we're still going to have, have all five congressional seats going. The Republicans, I mean, Colin and I, and probably Charles remember what those 5th District congressional races were like when they got to Nancy Johnson and Gary Franks and back and forth. And now it has been a Democrat for a long time. So I agree with Charles that it's very much there. I'm very, I agree with Charles that last night nationally showed that. But I think an undercurrent in Connecticut showed that we aren't still quite blue and that Trump's nationalism has definite support. Stryker tapped it, but Stryker didn't get as far as she would if it were a stronger undercurrent. Let's talk about the state legislature coming up here on the wheelhouse. You just heard Paul Bass, New Haven Independent Editor. Also, Charles Venator Santiago is here, Associate Professor of Political Science at UConn, and Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. You can find us on Twitter, too, at WNPR Wheelhouse. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On the state level, Democrats appear to have picked up seats in both the state House and state Senate. We wanted to talk about one of the hardest fought races in the state Senate, the contest between Republican Senator George Logan of Ansonia and Representative George Cabrera of Hamden in the 17th Senate District. This includes Hamden, several towns to the north and west of New Haven. Cabrera was in the lead overnight. I believe the outcome is still uncertain. Paul Bass, what can you tell us about this interesting race? I agree, interesting race, because that was America. It wasn't Connecticut. That district has <laughs> Trump country in the Naugatuck Valley and the bluest blue in Hamden. So at the end of the night, Cabrera, the Democrat, who was running a rematch against Logan, who's an African-American Republican who plays in the Jimi Hendrix tribute band, he uh, <laughs> came out, they think, 20 votes ahead before absentees are counted. And because there are tens of thousands of more absentees votes, or over 10,000 more, in his strong towns, they're confident, but they got to remember that two years ago, the same candidates ran. Cabrera was declared the winner on election night, and they had miscounted or had a recount in Ansonia. He went to a victory party in Hartford the next day, got a phone call, say, oops, you lost. They miscounted in a precinct in Ansonia. So I'll definitely looks better for Cabrera, and that's good for the Democrats statewide because it does increase their um, majority. I, I, I wouldn't 
if I were Cabrera, I would never declare victory until they count all those votes. Mm, Senator Logan in a tribute band. Now I understand why Matt Dwyer wanted me to ask you if he's a guitar god. <laughs> yeah, I once got to jam with him on radio. He's very good. <laughs> he's very good. Uh, so tell us more about the where these candidates stand on particular policies. What, the difference great, between it's them. a great debate. It is the government debate. They honestly both have a deep conviction that government helps solves problems or government is the problem. Paid family lead, lead, Cabrera, the Democrat for it, Logan against the Logan against the plan. Public option or more health care. Logan likes the private sector. I mean, he's pretty hardcore about all that. And and Cabrera, a progressive taxation. Logan wants everyone's taxes cuts, including the rich. Cabrera wants the rich to pay more. Unionization. Cabrera's a union organizer. Logan's a management guy. Environment. It all. This was the starkest ideological race that was competitive, perhaps in Connecticut, and um, and it's such a divided district that looks more like America. It's such a purple district, and it's so close that I love that race also because neither of the candidates are jerks. I mean, like this is the way we want politics to be. Logan's a very Reagan kind of positive, sunny guy in a very genuine way. He's everywhere. I mean, that guy's Instagram feed—you feel like you're traveling the globe every five minutes, even in a pandemic. And Cabrera's a hardcore kind of labor Democrat. And um, I love that race. I, I think the candidates are terrific. And I think it shows our divided country with very genuine differences of opinion from the blue collar post-industrial Northern Valley that was solidly for Logan, even though he's African-American and that's a Trump district that's largely white. And Hamden, which has gotten bluer than blue as our whole country gets more bifurcated. That used to be a conservative Democratic town. And you're, you're getting bluer or bluer or redder and redder, depending where you are in this country and where you are in the 17th state Senate District of Connecticut. Mm. I want to stick with you, Paul, because you know New Haven so well. There's also another race, state Senate candidate Jason Bartlett ran into some trouble, uh, and he was challenging Judiciary Committee co-chair uh, Senator Gary Winfield. What happened there? Well, first of all, he got creamed. Gary Winfield was very strong. What was fun about that race, Jason Bartlett's a very creative candidate. He had no argument. He's running to the left on policing and other issues against the legislature's foremost, most successful proponent of police accountability and uh, kicking people out of jail. So he never had a chance. But on election day in West Haven, where the police force is kind of in the last century, they actually told him he couldn't stand about 50 feet from the polls. I mean, sorry, about 150 feet from the polls. And he called me up. He said, what am I going to do? Because the police are coming. I said, turn on Facebook Live. So he did. And by the time the police came and saw that it was being on Facebook Live, they didn't make a move. But after the cameras turned off, they went to another one of his workers, a young kid at another polling station and made him leave. The kid was intimidated. I'm not quite sure. I don't think that has huge significance, to be honest. In the Black Lives Matters protest, the West Haven Police Department also acted kind of badly until the uh, Facebook Live cameras came on. I don't think that's a statewide story. I think we always have arguments about what's 75 feet, or in this case, what's 150 feet and what's the law. It was just kind of humorous. And Bartlett's always kind of a um, Michael Moore type candidate who's fun to write about and points out things that are kind of screwing the system. But it wasn't a close race. Gary Winfield is a very popular incumbent. You couldn't run to his left and say that you're for a better police accountability bill, even if you get up generate, you know, little specific points you can point off but he's definitely a rising star he's being talked about if if lamont doesn't run for a second term he's being talked about as lieutenant governor he's, he's the chair in judiciary and um that was sort of a status quo election colin can we talk about how the police accountability law and the fact that you had police unions endorsing <coughs> gop candidates how that affected other general assembly races yeah first of all i would just like to say i would 
actually pay money to listen to my friend Paul Bass talk about New Haven politics. It's always so much fun. He he always knows so much stuff, too. Mm -hmm. It's just terrific uh, fun. Yeah, so the police unions were uh, running hard uh, against uh, targeted Democrats whom they blamed for the police accountability bill. It doesn't seem to have moved many needles. It probably moved a race in Stonington, where I believe there was an actual policeman who was running against an incumbent there. Uh, So the Stonington race probably went that way for that reason. But there were other races where, you know, you'd have three towns with three different police unions backing a Republican candidate and it didn't work. I I would assume maybe they got started a little too late on it or maybe it's not such a great issue. Uh, I, while I just have the floor, I'll quickly say there's a lot of races that are in limbo right now. There are mm-hmm. a lot of absentee ballots that have not been processed. So, yeah, you've got Logan Cabrera. That's going to hang in the balance till they get all the ABs opened and, and run through the scanner. You can say the same thing about Tony Huang, who, you know, you think... Uh, uh, He's also, you know, been in office a really long time. I would have said that was a safe seat in most most cycles, uh, but that one has not been called yet. Uh, and even up in the Farmington Valley, where there were the, some flips in the House, uh, the Democrats took away a seat that Leslie Hill had that's uh, uh, an Avon Canton House seat. And so Kevin Whitkos probably who would have a very good chance to take over Len Fasano's role as the leader of the Republicans in the state Senate, uh, also a former police officer, but now an employee of Eversource, um, and who has a 20-year career in the House and Senate. He's in a close race, too. I don't think Melissa, I'm hearing Melissa Osborne has more ground to cover to catch up to him than in some of these other tight races we're talking about. But, but basically, it's, it's, it'll take at least until the end of the day before we know what the majorities in the House and Senate are. I mean, we know the Democrats will pick up seats in both chambers. At least I'm pretty confident uh, of that, but we don't know how many. Charles, what do you think uh, the the factors that will help Democrats uh, pick up some seats in the General Assembly? Is it the fact that uh, because we have uh, Republicans and the, uh, being attached to President Trump, that doesn't help uh, Republicans running for state races here? You know, I, 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 I hearken back to a comment by one of my colleagues, Ron Shuren, where he said, mm-hmm. who reminds us that there weren't that many debates in the legislature, especially General Assembly, especially with a short session. Uh, so in some ways, I wonder where the voters are looking to national questions when they're thinking about these state races, because there's not much to pick at in terms of, of late legislative uh, initiatives. Um I also think that the legislature, General Assembly, uh, essentially gave General Lamont an incredible amount of power to deal with this crisis. And I wonder whether a lot of voters are sort of, this is a sort of referendum on how Connecticut has responded to uh, this crisis. I mean, I'm actually happy. I have a million complaints about Connecticut, especially the cost of living here. But I'm happy to be here with my son uh, in a safer place compared to the rest of the nation. And I think, I, I have a suspicion that a lot of voters may have uh, voted for Democrats as an affirmation of a sort of bigger context. Uh, Colin, we got a tweet from uh, Stephen, and I'm wondering if you can shed some light on his uh, question. He wanted to know thoughts on the 53rd State House District race. And I believe, uh, let me look here real quick, that the 53rd uh, race was between Republican uh, Tammy Nuncio, or uh, apparently upset the Democrat Pat Wilson. Uh, Fenius, can you talk a little bit about that? What do you know? 
Um, I do, I can't talk a lot about it. I can right. say that uh, Pat Phineas Wilson uh, Phineas. was a uh, Phineas was a first term winner in 2018. She's African American. Um, I I don't I don't you know these some of these house races are so uh, granular you know and so local. I, I I don't really have any idea why that went the way that it did. I mean this is kind of Eastern Connecticut. I mean there's sort of two areas. Of Connecticut that you could call Trump country. One of them is the one that Paul's been talking about a little bit, which is that sort of Naugatuck Valley Route 8 spine. Uh, and, and then the other one is sort of the general, you know, <laughs> swampy world of the second congressional district, some of which is very liberal, but some of which is also very conservative. So I just don't know enough about the politics on the ground there to know why that mm-hmm. race went the way it did. Colin, you mentioned the TV special last night. Uh, our colleague, John Henry Smith, had asked you about uh, the fact that uh, Governor Lamont uh, is so popular, especially uh, during this pandemic, and how that may have impacted Democrats running in these races. What can you tell us? Yeah, I don't think Lamont has coattails, actually. Okay. Um, I, I think... Trump has negative coattails in a lot of places. If there's a sort of a top of the ticket effect, I think, first of all, it's hard for a governor who's not even on the ballot to have an effect. I also don't think that Lamont is heavily identified uh, with the members of the legislature who are running. And I expect them to be fighting with Lamont an awful lot when all of this is over. Uh, it is amazing that I, I think at one point Ned Lamont was the least popular governor, lowest favorability rating in the country, and now he's close to the top. Uh, and, I mean, that's got to mean something, but I don't know how to map it one-to-one onto a legislative race. Uh, Paul, before we head to break, uh, you know, because we have this Democratic majority uh, most likely uh, in the General Assembly come January, what policies do you expect to see debated? I think health care expansion. I think with Supreme Court rules on some issues, we're going to see that. I think progressive taxation is, to Colin's point, an issue that the Democrats in Connecticut have to um, wrestle with. Aid to education in cities and towns. I don't think you're going to see like huge breaks. I don't think you're going to see tolls come back. Um, I don't think anyone's dealing with that. And I think an expansion perhaps of uh, early voting. Mm. Charles? I, I would add the zoning debate uh, that Sarah Bonin's pushing because there is a short housing shortage in Connecticut. And, and I'm seeing a lot of immigration, not migration to other areas in Connecticut that may explain some of this upsurge uh, or voting in this particular moment. So I mentioned we're going to go to break, but we don't have any more breaks left. We want to go on to feats of strength and airing of grievances. And we've got about four minutes. So, Colin, I'll start with you. There's a lot to to, to distill and and still think about in the next few days. Uh, Who do you want to throw feats or grievances towards? Well, uh, I'll I'll just sort of say a a feat of anxiety, uh, probably more than anything else, about the situation in Michigan. A Republican friend of mine said that one of these uh, kinds of cases, a case like this one, could make the the Brooks Brothers riot, which was the 2000... you know, physical riot in Florida look like a bake sale. I think that's very nervous. But I want to do a feat of strength very quickly, too. It has nothing to do with politics. I think we need a break to a woman yes. in Haddam, who, East Haddam, who, with the help of her donkey, fought off an attacking coyote. She uh, fought the uh, animal with a pitchfork, and then her uh, donkey kicked the coyote. Uh, I think that's pretty damn impressive. <laughs> Thank you for that, Colin. Paul. I want to give my feet of strength to the non-elected officials who made democracy work during a pandemic. The 600 yes. people who went to, worked at the polls in New Haven despite the pandemic from 
people over 60 like Harriet Welfare, who just put their shield up to Gabriel Matos in his 20s, who said, I'm going to fill in for the old people scared. And to Kyle Brown Dean of Disrupted in Cornell University, who organized, inspired by the 1870s work by African-American women to go to the polls to support men to vote, putting on the party at the polls throughout New Haven, where DJs came, poetry readers, and state rep Robin Porter did duet with Rashawn Langley on <laughs> What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. I think that's the spirit that's going to get us through whatever we have coming up. And if I'm ever at the crossroads where Robert Johnson sold his cell to the devil to play the blues, <laughs> I will sell my soul to devil to write like Colin McEnroe. Oh, so nice. I love too it. Nice, too nice. <laughs> we'll make sure we tweet that that video out again of state rep Robin Porter. <laughs> Uh, singing along. I just want to give a, a, a huge feat of strength to our producer here, Matt Dwyer, with very little sleep producing this show. And Colin, we had a good time last night with a, a great collaboration between Connecticut Public and Hearst, Connecticut, doing a, a one-hour TV special, putting radio folks on TV. You never know how that's going to work, but I felt like it was great. And I love seeing reporters like Ali Oshinsky and Brenda Leone and Frankie Graziano giving us reports from the field. What do you think, Colin? Everybody was great. Did I not, not doze off and miss Charles's feet of strength? Oh, Charles, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I have, You can tell I have not slept either. <laughs> no, no, listen, I, I, I've been very self-centered this past since COVID started with my kid. I'm always anxious about my seven-year-old son, uh, and I, my, I'm happy to live in Connecticut. I'm happy that the people have responded, Governor Lamont, the legislature has worked, and that Connecticut is a safe place to live, and, you know, with all the criticisms that I have, I'm happy that students are doing well, and you know, that we're in a safer place than the rest of the nation. Mm, here, here. Well, again, thank you to our great panelists, Charles Venter, Santiago, Associate Professor of Political Science at UConn. Paul Bass, thank you, editor of New Haven Independent. Mm-hmm. Colin McEnroe of the Colin McEnroe Show. And you'll be talking about, I'm sure, the election and other things coming Chris up. Chris Murphy at will one be joining today. us. Yep. Wonderful. Senator Murphy, great to hear. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We'll be back next week.